Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, to trouble getting to sleep? Well, welcome. You're in the right place. Sleep With Me is proud to present Game of Drones, the Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. Now please don't, like, for the love of, love of Sir Jorah and the horse lords, don't wear your armor to bed or uh, something with horse hair on it either, frig. But uh, get in bed, turn out the lights, press play. The podcast is going to do the rest. What we're going to do is we're going to create a safe place where you can set aside everything that's racing through your mind, picking at your brain, poking at you, bugging you, driving you nuts. I want you to take all those burdens right now. And burden is a loaded word, but it doesn't have to mean all good or all bad. Just a burden, something weighing you down, keeping you from sleep. I want you to take that burden, and I want to put. I want you, to, you know, figuratively, or if you got a burden in bed with you, oh boy, put it at the foot of your bed. All right, go ahead and do that. Do it with me. Take the burden. This is about as new age as we get on this podcast. Just a heads up in the same. So put the burden at the end of your bed, and I'll lie back down. Okay, let's take a little breath here. Uh, my breath, uh, but just take take a deep breath. All right, now kick that fucking burden right off the end of your bed. All right, that shit's on the floor. Sorry, sometimes I swear it's like uh, when it, I'm going deep below my diaphragm, emotional spot that has a lot of swearing in it. But I try not to throw everybody off, but that burden, you kicked it off your bed. It's on the floor. It'll be there in the morning. So whatever's been bugging you, or eating at you. It's, it's gone. It's now. It's off. It was at the foot of your bed, but we don't want it in bed with us. We kicked it off our bed. Kicked it out of our bed. And that's what the podcast is here for. The way we're going to do it is we're going to create a safe place. Starts off by figuratively kicking that shit right off of your bed. And out of your out of your bed. Has no place there. Taking a breath. And then I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones. I'm going to distract you from that thing trying to climb up there and say, hey, hey. Wait, no, you forgot about that spreadsheet, buddy. Oh, boy, you don't, you don't even know how many columns there are, and I don't even know what is the column and the friggin' the other thing, huh? And what formula are you going to use tomorrow? That that voice, kick it again. You know, nudge it if you need to. If you don't like kicking, nudge it. Nudge it off the bed. All right, we're going to distract you from that. I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones. I'm going to talk about Season 1, Episode 9, Baylor. I'm going to talk about the episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened. I'm going to, you know, dodge some spoilers, but you're going to get spoiled. And I'm going to talk about stuff that interests me. Like uh, last week we talked about stuff. I don't even know. So long ago, but uh, I think we talked about vocabulary words. We talked about, uh, we talked about some stuff and you fell asleep. If you're new here, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to start talking about, like, hey, how come they don't make toys out of this anymore? You never know. So, like, uh, when they made toys out of this, it was great. But then this one, you know, something like that. Something like that. Everything that's been happening up until this point, just to distract you from your race and mind, entertain you. But you don't have to give me your whole attention. Just relax. If this is your first time here, 
As usual, I try to introduce the podcast in some gentle, positive marketing. I don't know, but that's not my that's not my skill set. Marketing, sales, pitching. Well, I could pitch probably. Remember when I pitched Tim Curry's people. Um, but you know, for that stuff, isn't my forte. But uh, you know, I'm, my forte is dull stuff, lulling stuff, somewhat interesting stuff. And I'm here to comfort you, honestly, and help you fall asleep. That's what this podcast does. I'm going to do my best to do that. If you don't watch Game of Thrones, try it out. See if this episode works for you. Otherwise, we have ones on Tuesday and Thursday that don't have Game of Thrones. If you find Game of Thrones scary or too aggressive or too much violence, just skip these episodes. Don't don't let, it, don't let that thing crawl back in your bed because of something I'm saying, all right? I want you to be able to fall asleep and get a good night's sleep, and I hope this podcast works for you. If it doesn't, I hope you find something that does. I put some boring stuff in the last episode's show notes or two episodes ago's show notes. I'll put them in again. All right. We're on the web, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes are over at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. That one, Ian, was clear. Uh, you can get a hold of me, feedback at Sleep With Me Podcast. You can post on the website. You can get me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter. You can get us on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts, anything? If you got anything to share, I got to get Damon's permission, but I was thinking about, uh, I don't even barely know what a tumbler is. I mean, I know what it looks like, and I looked at it. I looked at them. We have one. I was thinking about if you guys have stuff. You want to share art, music, anything, even if it doesn't have to do with the podcast, it has to do with dreams or feelings or whatever, share it with me and I'll put it up on that Tumblr blog there or whatever it is, Sleep With Me podcast or something. All right? So let me know about that. Just email me or Twitter me or feed Facebook. And that's it. Um, I'm going to talk about the episode. I'm going to say some thank yous in some order like that. Then we'll get to everything. All right? Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. And I hope I help you fall asleep. Hey, guys. It's uh, me, uh, Gratitude. Driving the Gratitude Express on uh, horseback or like a team of horses probably. Carrying the good news of uh, my gratitude to you all for everything you got to provide me down here on Westeros. Uh, so I want to thank you for... Uh, Posty Posterson, who does our music, uh, Sir Scott, and Her Grace, Jennifer, who t- helped to take care of our podcast art, the Lord and Lady of the podcast who rule over us with the wisdom and um, quietness that only we can hope that they are well, the defrenestrator, all of our workers and uh, warriors and helpers on the show, and all our new People we're hearing from lately. Uh, Gods, I want to thank you for Tinny T over on Twitter. Samuel John. Brian. Brian N. He's kind of pretty new. He had some great stuff to say on Twitter to us. Brian H. from Windsor over on Facebook. Gods, thank you for Brian H.'s kind words. Michelle G. Her support. Kelly M. support. They are Facebook. Gods, you don't need to ask what that is anymore. Carolyn S. got a hold of us on email. Thank you for Carolyn S. Gods. Wendy, Gods, you don't even know what comments are on a website, but she commented on the website. 
So thank you, God, for all those people and then for our iTunes reviewers. God, sorry, my tablet just went to sleep in the middle of this. Oh, like a stone tablet. Yeah, God's just like you're thinking. Horatio UY for his review. Master of Sticks figures. Holly Olea. Holly Olea. Totes Riddick. And Eric. Erica one. That's Erica, our buddy. Totes Riddick. I like saying that. I don't know what it means. I like all of those. Being the master of six stick figures. I know who Horatio is. He was having some finals. Holly O'Lea. Hope I'm saying all those names correctly, gods. Thank you, gods, for keeping this podcast running. And for all the fine, fine people that listen. Thank you. And all the regular people that, you know, we hear from all the time. Chelsea Rose. The insane master of glitter. Damon. Bunch of other people we've heard from this week, gods. I haven't even been able to check my... Inboxes yet the couple this whole weekend because I've been too busy dealing with some stuff. I'll talk to you later about gods. All right, thank you. All right, so we're talking season one, episode nine, Baylor. My first, my first note is why Baylor. That was before the end of the episode. I wrote that note, but it's like one of those good titles. Especially, um, I watched uh, about thirty-five minutes in one night, and then the rest of the episode the next night. So it really left me in like the whole day. I'm like. Why is that? Did they already? Did I miss something? Or what's coming up? Is it Baylor? And then I was like thinking, is it going to be? I was watching HBO Go, and the image on HBO Go is of uh, Tyrion coming out of the tent. So I was like, is this going to be Tyrion related to Link to Baylor? I don't really remember everything about this episode from the. I only had seen it one other time, but it was a great episode. A lot, a lot to, a lot to talk about. A lot I missed. A lot I cover. Opens in the dungeon. Yeah, Ned and Varys. He says, you've seen better days. Ned says, it seems like you're my last friend. Then Varys says, uh, when I was a boy, traveled with actors. Every man has a role to play, and it's true of court. Something or other. You know, I got to do what I got to do. I'm the master of whisperers. I'm sly, obsequious, without scruples. Says kid, Ned says, hey, buddy, can you free me, you think? He says, I could, but will I? Ned says, what do you want? He says, didn't we cover this last week, man? I said, I want peace here for the friggin' realm. That's something about his life. I don't know. Ned's like, Ned's like, you think my life means anything to me? It's precious to me? That's what he says. Ned says, do you think my life is that precious to me? That I'd trade my honor for a few more years of what? I'm very Ned-like. Uh, plus, he's like, you know, this they cut, I think. But he's like, yo, I got, I got married to Caitlin. She's kind of a hard ass, man. So, and I'm, I'm a little, you know, I'm, I'm, so, and I, honors my thing. Ferris says, well, what about your daughter's life? Is that precious, precious to you? And it's like, oh, boy. And that has another good line before that. He says, you know, I grew up with soldiers. I learned how to die a long time ago. And that's when he says, what of your daughter's life? Boom, then we bounce out to Rob. He's at this river. Uh, what's that river called? The uh, Twins? Uh, no, no, the uh, whatever, the big river where the battle between Robert and one of the Targaryens went down. Trident, that's what it's called. 
And they got this guy, Walter Frey, his family's held this crossing here in the river. It's like a castle bridge situation. Held it for 600 years, according to the, the lore. Cat says, I'll go in and talk to this Walter. She goes in. His father, this, this again, this is a little more straight played without comedy. But it was kind of ridiculous. Um, Monty Python situation. We're not covering Monty Python this episode, but Walter's got a lot of resentment towards everybody. Caitlin's father, Ned, everybody for not marrying off his kids. He's got to take, he's got all his kids living with him. And his kids, they're, they're kind of whiny. And his son-in-law's too, I think. So he's not, I mean, who could be happy if you got a house full of your kids? No one wants to marry them. No offense. I mean, if you have one or two kids living with you, that's fine. But he's got, it looks like he had about 18. Then Mormont gives uh, John Snow his uh, sword, Longclaw, that he had held for Sir Jorah. Uh, so a little bit of uh, something building. We're like, oh, man, now he sees uh, Jon Snow as his son, kind of. He's kind of a father figure there. But uh, Jorah's out, you know. Hey, Jorah, I gave your sword away. You embarrassed me or whatever. Humiliated the family name. Then we bounce back, and Walder Frey, Cat's made a deal with him. Rob and Ari are going to marry some of his kids. Rob's like, oh, boy. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Rob's crony. Theon Greyjoy thinks that's hilarious. Then we got Aemon, Aemon Targaryen feeding the ravens, telling his story and uh, about you know what he had to sacrifice and give up in the battle. He he didn't go. He couldn't. The vengeance he never sought out because he was too old to do it. And it's like kind of like, well, what's the lesson here, Rob? What's your duty? Because he says love is the death of duty. And your, your job here is to protect the wall. Good line. What is honor compared to a woman's love? Then we, that's when we hear a story. Of course, I botched that, but whatever. Then we got Kyle Drogo sick, falling off his horse. All the horse lords making a big deal of it. A little bit sad. Khaleesi sad. That makes me sad. We jump over to Lannister camp. Tywin's talking shit about Rob. Oh, he's uh, got some provincial courage. Mindless provincial courage, he says. He tells Tyrion him and his wildlings are going to be in the vanguard, which I guess takes the front of the battle or something. Tyrion's like, why don't you just kill me some other braver, rave? Thanks for nothing. I'm not even going to eat your breakfast. You're, you're a bad dad. I'm out. But it was a really nice, it was a really well-acted scene. Then we have Bronn, who's taken this woman, Shay, hostage or hired her. Or a little bit of both for Tyrion to have a woman for his last night in case he gets, you know, killed. Her name's Shay. They have a nice interchange about what did your mother call you? And then she says, is that what we're here for? To talk about our mothers? So, no, that's not why I'm here, baby. And then she has another killer line right after that. She says, "Uh, what kind of accent is that? She says, foreign. Boom. That's killer, killer. Comedy in the show is so under, it's, I mean, whew, boy, if you're not laughing now, <laughs> you should watch the episode because then you'll probably be laughing. And we go back to the sick call. He's delirious from the fever. 
Khaleesi's trying to take care of him. Jorah's like, this is he's going to die, Khaleesi. We've got to get out of here. we got to go catch a boat somewhere because these horse lords are going to mess us up. And Khaleesi's like, no, give me a witch. The witch is like, we'll use some blood magic. It's probably not a good idea, but let's go, go ahead and bring me his horse. It's a life for a life. She has a nice line, the dead will dance here tonight, the, the witch woman. Then we got Jorah kicking the crap out of a horse lord. That was pretty fun. Then we have uh, Shay, Bronn, and Ta- Tyrion playing a little drinking game, candle burning game, learning about each other, learning that Shay's got some secrets, and uh, Bronn's lived a tough life, and the Tyrion has too. And it's a sad story. If you don't know it, I'll let you discover it on your own about Tyrion's first wife. But I like the term in there, wheelwright's orphan. That was a nice touch. What beautiful acting by Dinklage. And he tells her, you know, if I die, will you weep for me? She's like, you'll be dead, bro. And then another killer line up front, Bron says, stay low. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He's like, stay low. He's like, if you're lucky, no one will notice you. He's like, I was born lucky. Then he gets lucky. He gets knocked out before the battle even starts. And Bronn sees him later. He says, you're a shit warrior. Ends up there's a complication on the battle. There's supposed to be 18,000 men. Only 2,000 of Rob's men showed up. Lannister's won, but at what cost? Then we see that Jamie was captured by Rob and his men. Rob says he cut down ten of our men while we ca- tried to capture him. So Jamie does have some little bit of badass in him, even though he's always uh, getting crapped on by people. And he's a bad, I mean, seems like a pretty bad person, um, despite, you know, the fact that he looks like he should be freaking modeling for some uh, tag Hewer Omega Rolex ads. But, other than, you know, he's, he doesn't make him a good person, right? And we have another scene that's nice where Arya breaks this pigeon's neck and she's trying to sell it and she's adjusting to this new life as a street urchin, getting mistreated. And she handles it pretty well, especially as the earlier part of the season, how bratty the uh, Stark kids are. She's kind of a little bit resolute, if that's a, I don't know what resolute, if that's the right way to use it, but... Then they first mention a Baylor. They're taking. They say, "She's like, what's going on?" They're like, "They're taking the hand to the sept of Baylor." And Arya climbs up the statue. She looks around, and she sees her dad. He sees her. And I was like, "What is that statue?" And then you see Ned whisper over to the his his. Uh, his buddy from the Night's Watch, he says, Baylor, Baylor. And he points to Arya. It's like, oh, it's a statue of Baylor. Title of the episode, Baylor. Arya's on the statue of Baylor. They're at the Sept of Baylor. Hence, Baylor. And then Ned tries to sack. He says, hey, I'm going to confess my treason. I want to do what's right for my Sansa baby here. Joff's the true heir. And then the the bubbling meister, what I forget his name always because I block it from him. And he says, you know, gods are just, but they're merciful. What do do you think we should do, king? And then Joff, we see his true colors. He says, you know, well, women have soft hearts. 
So uh, my, I told my mom I'd do this, but I ain't going to do it because I'm a little punk. He says, Sir Ellen, bring me his head. Oh, that's a spoiler. Too late now. But uh, And then the guy's down there telling Arya not to watch, and she watches these birds fly overhead instead of watching her father uh, pass away. Pretty, Pretty tough stuff, powerful stuff. Now... I hope I, I mean, if you're listening to this, you're going to get, I mean, come on. This episode came out like 10 years, I mean, not 10 years ago, but four, three or four years ago. But this did get spoiled for me the the day after the premiere. Because what happened was I didn't have HBO when first season of Game of Thrones came out. So I said, I said to myself, read the book and then get HBO or wait, you know, by the time you're done with the book, you know, the hype had begun right before it came out or whatever. And so I started reading the book. I'm about halfway, three quarters through the book when the uh, uh, this episode comes out. I'm at work. My supervisor yells across the entire floor where we have, like, cubicles, us peons. And she says, uh, well, would you believe what happened to Ned Bean last night? Blah, blah. And, I, I mean, I was like, I was like, holy cow, you got to be kidding me. Lady, you just ruined me. You just ruined it. You just ruined this book for me. And we work with books. And what's wrong with you? And she said, "I'm gonna need to write you up for that." No, that didn't happen. But um, so that was tough stuff. All right. So that's the summary. What are we gonna talk about tonight? We're gonna talk about Baylor. Ba- what are we gonna talk about tonight? We're gonna talk about Baylor. We're gonna talk about all the world being a stage. We're gonna talk about the free cities. We're going to just cover some vocabulary words. We're going to talk about robber barons, when doves cry, you be Ellen, Sir Pounce, and we'll have our prayers. All right, thanks for listening. Let's talk Baylor. Baylor Targaryen, full name Baylor of the House Targaryen, the first of his name, called Baylor the Blessed, and Baylor the Beloved is a mentioned character in the third. He died before the time of his series and is not expected to appear. Background. Baylor was a king in the Targaryen dynasty. He had the great Sept of Baylor, which became the center of the Faith of the Seven built during his reign in the city of King's Landing. A large statue of him was later erected in front of the great Sept. During his reign, he had the Maiden Vault built inside the Red Keep and imprisoned his three sisters there to prevent carnal temptations. The Maiden Vault. Although famed for his holiness and piety, he was also a religious zealot. Among Baylor's follies, he named a six-year-old boy High Septon because he was convinced the child could work miracles. Baylor starved himself into an early grave with his frequent religious fasting. Given that Baylor abhorred desires of the flesh, he died without issue. He was succeeded by his uncle, Viserys the second Targaryen. Let's see. Let's look. This is the Great Sept of Baylor. The Great Sept of Baylor, also called the Great Sept, or just the Sept of Baylor, is a massive sept, the center of religious worship for the faith of the seven, and the seat of the high septon of the faith. It is located in King's Landing, the capital of the seven kingdoms, and is the largest single building in the city. Though the Red Keep 
complex sprawls over a larger area. Great religious ceremonies are held there. It is also the sept personally used in the royal family. Thus, royal weddings are held in the great sept in massive ceremonies. The sept is named for King Baylor Targaryen, a king noted for his religious piety and pacifism. A, a statue of King Baylor is located in the square in front of the sept. The inside of the sept is decorated with paintings of the seven-pointed star and sculptures depicting the seven different aspects of the godhead. Votive offerings and lit candles are placed beneath at the base of the statues of the seven. Huh, I might have to get in here. The main sanctum chamber can comfortably seat 700 people. There are other spaces which in the complex that can seat larger numbers. So that's just a little bit about Baylor the Blessed I wanted to, you know, fill you guys in on. Thanks. So uh, another thing Varys said about um, is when he was before, was it before or after they took his, um, I forgot if it was before, I mean, I'm, I'm being honest, but uh, he said, you know, he lived with these actors and one time he told him every actor has a part and like life in court is like this. And we all know that generally it's like, oh, that's that's familiar. All the world's a stage. And then I'm like, is that, um, did, I, did I already look that up for this podcast? Is that uh, Shakespeare? And then I look up, my like, holy cow, I'm right. I'm like, wow. So uh, it's from, the quote is a famous quote, all the, wor- all the world's a stage. And it's a phrase that begins a monologue. This is according to Wikipedia from Shakespeare's As You Like It. That's William Shakespeare, spoken by the melancholy Jacques. Jacques, with an S, so Jacques, I don't know, Act 2, Scene 7. The speech compares the world to a stage and a life to a play and catalogs the stages of life. But, you know, you could in- interpret that. The origins of the world as a stage, the comparison to the world as a stage and to people to actors long predated Shakespeare. Richard Edwards' play Damon and Pythias was written in the Shakespeare was born and said, the lines Pythagoras said the world was like a stage wherein many play their parts, the lookers on, the sage. When it was founded in 1599, Shakespeare's own theater, the Globe, used the motto, Totus Mundus Agit Historonim, all the world plays the actor. In his own earlier work, Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare had one of his characters, Antonio, comparing the world to a stage. I hold the world, but as the world, Gratiano a stage where every man must play a part, and mine a sad one. So it talks about the ages of the man. I want to read, um, well, I'm trying to think if I should put it in context first from this play. Let's let's go through the, uh, let's read the monologue. Uh, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. His acts being seven stages, first the infant, mewing and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face creeping like a snail, unwillingly to school, and then the lover, sighing like a furnace with woeful ballad, made to his mistress's eyebrow, then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation, 
even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly, with good cape on lined and with sattva, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise straws in modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth stage shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved a world too wide. For his shrunk shank and his big manly voice, turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second child, child, his second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So that's um, that's from As You Like It, which is a, this is the best part, according to Wikipedia. As You Like It is a pastoral comedy by William Shakespeare. So a, a comedy or a work of art that's evocative, I think for metaphorical reasons, to the good old life out on the farm or shepherding or in the woods, I think, which is in this case. It was published in the first folio, 1623. It's uh, mixed reviews um, between critics and people nowadays and back then. Some people consider it good. Some people don't. A lot of great actors have been in it. Let's get to the plot. The synopsis. The play is set in, a, in France. Action takes place in a forest called the Forest of Arden. Uh, it could be part of Belgium. We don't know. Or someplace else. Frederick has usurped the duchy and ex- exiled his older brother, Duke Signor. The Duke's daughter, Rosalind, has been permitted to remain at court because she is the closest friend and cousin of Frederick's only child, Celia. Orlando, a young gentleman of the kingdom, who at first sight has fallen in love with Rosalind, is forced to flee his home after being persecuted by his older brother, Oliver. Frederick becomes angry and banishes Rosalind from court. Celia and Rosalind decide to flee together, accompanied by the jester Touchstone, with Rosalind disguised as a young man and Celia disguised as a poor lady. She could be the crone. Rosalind, now disguised as Ganymede, Jove's own page, and Celia, now disguised as Helena, Latin for stranger, arrive in the Arcadian forest of Arden, where the exiled duke now lives with some supporters, including the melancholy Jacques, a malcontent figure who is introduced to us weeping over the slaughter of a deer. They do not encounter the duke and his companions to meet up with Cornyn, impoverished, impoverished tenant, and offer to buy some crude cottage. I don't know what that means. Orlando and his servant Adam find the duke and his men, Live with them. He's writing love poems for Rosalind on the trees. Rosalind, in love with Orlando, meets him as Ganymede. Ganymede, right? Pretends to counsel him to cure him for being in love. Oh, this is straight out of the movies. Ganymede said he will take Rosalind's place and he and Orlando can act out their relationship. Wow, this is a very uh, archetypal story. The shepherdess, being ignorant, has its reward sometimes. The shepherdess, or some, the shepherd or dress, Phoebe, with whom Sylvius is in love, has fallen in love with Ganymede. 
Rosalind in disguise, though Ganymede continually shows he is not interested in Phoebe. Touchstone has fallen in love with the dull-witted shepherdess, Audrey, and tries to woo her, but is eventually forced to be married first. William, another shepherd, attempts to marry Audrey as well, but is stopped by Touchstone, who threatens to kill him 150 ways. Finally, Sylvia's Phoebe, Ganymede, and Orlando are brought together in an argument with each other over who gets who. Wow, this is Shakespeare really is a genius. I mean, I love Shakespeare, but um, I really have a tough time reading it because uh, I have a tough time. I mean, I'm not trying to, well, let's not talk about my problems. Ganymede well, says he's going to solve the problem, having Orlando promises to marry Rosalind. Phoebe promises to marry Sylvia, so she can't marry Ganymede. Orlando sees Oliver in the forest and rescues him from a lioness, calling Oliver to represent repent for mistreating Orlando. Oliver meets Elena, Celia's false identity, falls in love with her, and then they agree to marry. Orlando and Rosalind, Oliver and Celia, Sylvia's and Phoebe, Touchstone and Albury are all married in the final scene, after which they discover that Frederick has repented his faults, deciding, deciding to restore his illegitimate brother to dukedom and adopt a religious life. Jacques, ever melancholic, Declines their invitation to return to court, preferring to stay in the forest and adopt a religious life as well. Rosalind speaks an epilogue to the audience, commending them to play both men and women, commending the play to both men and women in the audience. So that's a mouthful, but that's great uh, stuff. Um, and then let me just read a little more Shakespeare because it's fun. And I know a couple of people have said they like it when I do stuff like this. So well, this is As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7, we'll read. We'll read for a few minutes. The forest, the table set out, enter Duke Senior, amens and lords like outlaws. Duke Senior, I think he be transformed into a beast, for I can know, for I can nowhere find him like a man. First Lord, my Lord, he has been now gone hence. He was a merry. Here was he merry, hearing of a song, Duke Senior. If he, compact of jars, grow musical, we shall have shortly disaccord in the spheres. Go seek him, and tell him I would speak with him. Enter Jacques. First Lord, he saves my labor by his own approach. Duke Senior, why, how now, Monsieur? What life is this, that your poor friends must woo your company? What, you look merrily. Jacques, a fool, a fool, I met a fool in the forest, a motley fool, a miserable world, and undo, and I do live by food. I met a fool who laid him down and basked him in the sun and railed on Lady Fortune in good terms, in good set terms, and yet a motley fool, good moral. Fool, quoth I, no, sir, quoth he, call me not a fool till heaven hath sent me fortune. And then he drew a dial from his poke. And looking on it with lackluster eye, says very wisely, It is ten o'clock. Thus we may see, quoth he, how the world wags. Tis but an hour ago since it was nine, and after one hour more it will be eleven. And so from hour to hour we ripe and ripe, and then from hour to hour we rot and rot, and thereby hangs a tale. When I did hear the motley fool Thus moral on the time, my lungs began to crow like a chantasselier. 
that the fools should that fools should be so deep contemplative, and I did laugh since intermission an hour by his dial. O oh, noble fool, a oh, worthy fool, Motley's only the wear. So there's a lot more good stuff in there, but we got to keep moving. But uh, yeah, uh, that is a little thing about the world and your part in it. And Jacques was a grouch. And this one all worked out in the end for everybody. That was the first Shakespearean play I'm aware of. That there was no, uh, you know, poison play or knife play. So that's good. All right, let's keep going. Another thing I was curious about are these free cities that get talked about from time to time. The free cities are nine powerful independent city-states located across the narrow sea to the east of Westeros. They are located on the western coast of the massive eastern continent of Essos. They trade with the seven kingdoms, and each one is a distinct and individual culture by itself. The overall area of the free cities in the respective territories are roughly equal in size to Westeros south of the Neck. Okay, this is from the books, just as a heads up. In the books, there are nine free cities. Bravos, Pentos, Norvos, Kor, Lorath, Tyrosh, Lys, Mir, and Volantis. Tyrosh, Lorath, and Lys are located on islands off the coast while Norvos and Quor are inland roughly east of Pentos. The rest are major seaports. Aside from Bravos, the free cities were colonies of the mighty empire of Valeria and gained their independence after the doom. As Martin has stated, the Valerian empire is essentially like equivalent to the Roman empire. The free cities are his equivalent of medieval Italian city-states. Coastal ones have a Mediterranean climate. Norvos and Quor might be like other Romance regions in medieval France and Germany. Bravos in the far north was founded by refugees fleeing Valerian tyranny. In terms of size, Volantis appears to be the physically largest city and the most populous, but Bravos is the richest and most powerful in military terms, as well as considered to be almost impregnable due to its position on a hundred islands in the middle of a vast lagoon, unassailable by land. Lys and Mir are perpetual rivals frequently warring over the disputed lands to the west of the river Rhone, as well as the stepstones. stepstones. Volantis and Tyrosh are sometimes reluctantly pulled into these wars. Volantis, at the mouth of the Rhone, is a major slave trading center, center and major stop for travelers heading from Westeros and the free cities to the distant Slaver's Bay. The Rhone and its numerous tributaries form a substantial trade and transport link through the interior of the landmass. Bravos, as we said, is the most powerful in a lagoon. Loras is the least known and least powerful south of Bravos in the Shivering Sea. Lys is an island city in the Summer Sea. Loticated close to the step stones and protected by a formidable, formidable navy and informal free sales who rent their services to the highest bidder. Lease is known for its pleasure houses. Its people are fair-skinned, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. Mir is a seaport located close to the disputed lands on the arm of the narrow sea, known as the Sea of Mirth. 
noted for its skilled craftsmen in the products, particularly optical lenses and fine lace. Lisa Mir, better rivals. Norvos is a major inland city. It's got it's in the hill country. Pentos is a seaport, land-based and vulnerable to Dothraki incursions. Among other items, it is known for its trade in cheeses, ruled by the Prince of Pentos and supported by a council of merchant magisters allied to Bravos. Quor, inland city in the forest of Quor, near the edge of the Dothraki Sea. You got Tyrosh, Volantis. I think they're talking about Volantis, and that's why I looked this up. That's the southernmost of the free cities. Largest and most populous, most corrupt. Was that what they were talking about? Where um, Jorah was like, let's catch a boat in Volantis. It was originally the most powerful of free cities, but it was sapped in the bleeding years. Obviously, in the bleeding years, leading to it being narrowly edged out by Bravos. Volantis is on the main mouth of the immense river Rhone. Yada, yada, yada. So that's uh, the free cities. All right, we're uh, back for uh, another edition of Vocab, uh, uh, Virginal Vocabulary ven, ven, Vendettas. We got the, uh, we're here to talk vocabulary in case anybody's interested. We had some great words that came up this episode. Again, words, it's like, I, I think I know what that means, but I'm not sure. I was going to say that should be the name of the segment, but then I, I say that a lot. So, you know, maybe that'd be my subtitle on this whole podcast. But so Varys had two words, and then Mr. Vocabulary, Tywin Lannister had the other one. The first one is obsequious. And now, uh, last time, I apologize, I was using the Merriam-Webster Dictionary last week. A lot of ads on that site and a lot of... uh, Flash and everything. So this week for two or three words, I'm trying the Wiktionary, I guess you say. So that's what obsequious. The etymology is from the Latin obsequiosus, complacent, something, complacent, from obsequium, compliance, from obsequior, comply with, yield, to, from ob, in direction towards, in direction towards, and sequior, follow. So in the direction of following. Huh. Pronunciation is uh, uh, a backwards EB, apostrophe SI, some two arrows pointing at each other vertically, KWI, period, backwards, upside down, ES, obsequious, uh, adjective. Obsequious, comparative, more obsequious, superlative, most obsequious. That's a uh, varus is, well, I don't know what it means yet, so let's hold on. Uh, Definition one, archaic is in parentheses, obedient, compliant with someone else's orders or wishes. Two, excessively eager and attentive to please or to obey all instructions. Fawning, subservient, servile. 1927, Thornton Wilder, The Bridge of San Luis Rey, page 20. Translation falls short, especially short of this conceit, which carries the whole flamboyance of the Spanish language. 
It was intended as an obsequious flattery of the Condessa and was untrue. Three, in parentheses, obsolete. I guess the limits of my knowledge of or pertaining to obsequies funereal. Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 2, The Survivor Bound, and Fiefal Obligation for Some Term to Do Obsequious Sorrow. And then again in Richard, Usage Notes. In modern usage, not to be concerned with the obsequies, I don't know. <laughs> Man, I need some help on these ones. Synonyms, fawning or subservient. Fawning, ingrating, servile, slavish, sycophantic, truckling, people-pleaser, kiss-ass. Related terms, obsequiously, obsequiousness. So that's obsequious. I kind of, hopefully you're asleep for that. Scruples is the next one. The word scruple or scruples can mean. Oh, wait, I guess maybe I didn't look it up in here. Let me click one more thing for the Wiktionary. Yeah, here we go. Scruple. English part of this entry is imported from the 1913 Webster's Dictionary, which is now free of copyright and hence in the public domain. The imported definitions may be significantly out of date, and any more recent senses may be completely missing. Etymology from the Latin scrupulous, unease of mind, trouble, anxiety, doubt, scruple, literally a small, sharp, or pointed stone, the 24th part of an ounce, Diminutive of scrupus, a rough or sharp stone, anxiety, uneasiness. Maybe a princess in the pea has to do with this. Perhaps akin to the ancient Greek something, chippings of stone, a razor, Sanskrit also a razor. Compare with French scrupule, scrupule. That sounds like Italian when I say it though. Noun. Scruple, plural, 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 scruples. Number one, obsolete, it says. A weight of 20 grains, the third part of a dram. Yeah, give me a, uh, you forgot my scruple on that dram. Two, hence, a very small quantity, a particle. Three, two is also obsolete, it said. Three, hesitation as to action from the difficulty of determining what is right or expedient. Hesitation to action from... So slow to react because you don't know what's right or quick. Unwillingness, doubt, hesitation, proceedings from motive of conscience. He was made miserable by the conflict between his tastes and his scruples. Thomas Babington Mulcahy. Four, obsolete. A A doubt or uncertainty concerning a matter of fact. Intellectual perplexity. Five, a measurement of time. Um, synonyms, modicum, small amount, derived terms, scrupulous, unscrupulous, oh, verb here, scruples, intransitive verb, to be reluctant or to hesitate as regards to an action on account of considerations of conscience or expedience. Two, to regard with suspicion, to hesitate at, to question. Others long before them scrupled. More the more the books of the her, heretes than of the Gentiles, John Milton. Obsolete, to doubt, to question, to hesitate, to believe, to question the truth. I do did do not scruple to admit all the earth seeth but half the moon. 
Four, to excite scruples in, to cause scruple. Letters which did scruple many of them. Like a scruple. My brain is scrupled. All right, now we're back at Merriam-Webster for pastoral, because Tywin says that Rob has a certain sort of something, pastoral something or else, is derogatory. Pastoral, an adjective of or relating to the countryside or to lives of people who live in the country. Of or relating to the spiritual care or guidance of people who are members of a religious group. Of or relating to the pastor of a church. Full definition of pastoral. Relating to or composed of shepherds. Relating to the countryside, not urban. What is he saying? He's not urban. He's like a... Portraying or expressive of a life of shepherds. Pleasingly peaceful and innocent, maybe. Relating to the spiritual care. That's the pastor one. Is there any other? There's pastoral as a noun. A literary work dealing with shepherds or rural life, a pastoral poetry or drama, rural picture or scene, a letter of a pastor. Okay, well, I don't know. It's not doing it for me. Certain sort of pastoral something. I mean, I guess he's saying he's like a dumb farm boy. Or, you know, the people in the north. It's in the middle of nowhere. I guess. So that's pastoral. I guess maybe you shouldn't take the SATs after listening to this. Um, like some sort, if you could give an oral argument and blame it on me, be better in better shape, but let's move on. Next thing I want to talk about is Robert Barons because, um, it seemed like, uh, that guy, what was his name? We we're just talking about him. The man with the one to marry all his kids off, whatever his name, Walter Frey. He could have been, a, it seemed to me, it reminded me of Robert Barron, him controlling this river, being a kind of a dirt ball. I don't know. Is he a robber baron or not? We don't know that enough about him. Robber barons are always something I don't know very much about, but I'm also very interested in. Um, if, you, if I ever come out with a TV show, it will be based on robber barons. And it will not be an action show or uh, very entertaining But uh, in that sense. But anyway, so um, I decided to look stuff up. I found an awesome article on the Financial Times but it looks like we're hitting a paywall on that one. I really don't want to link to stuff with a paywall. But it looks like there's a good article out there about it in the Financial Times. But we're going to start out with uh, we're covering on Wikipedia what a, what's a robber baron. And I'm talking about the uh, old school robber barons, not the, uh, the I guess that would be the middle school robber barons, which have been the industrialists. And now we've probably got a, our own round of robber barons nowadays. These would have been the OG robber barons on the Rhine, I believe. So let's look it up, shall we? Robber baron, a robber baron, or Robin Knight, robber knight, is a historic term and a title of disdain that was applied to the behavior and practices of a group of unscrupulous and despotic landowners in the medieval period in Europe. They hindered commerce by imposing unauthorized tolls and tariffs and at times by sometimes ransoming or hijacking the goods outright of caravans and riverine traffic amidst the poorly roaded tracks of the vast and far-flung D-E-M-E-S-N-E-S, Demonesses, something of the Holy Roman Empire. The term has a slightly different meaning in different countries and has changed somewhat over time. In modern U.S. parlance, 
The term since the nineteenth mid nineteenth century has come to describe the unscrupulous industrialists and stock speculators who like Germanic robin barons enrich their own pockets without adding to the common good. Germany early development for a thousand years from eight hundred to eighteen hundred AD tolls were collected from ships sailing on the River Rhine in Europe. I mean you notice Walter Frey's gotta be collecting tolls. And he collects a couple marriage tolls out of a cat um, just for, you know, walking your soldiers across. I mean, whatever. During this time, various feudal lords, among them archbishops who held fiefs from the Holy Roman Empire, collected tolls from passing cargo ships to bolster their finances. Only the Holy Roman Empire could authorize the collection of such tolls allowing the nobility and church to collect tolls from the busy traffic on the Rhine seems to have been an attractive alternative to other means of taxation and funding of government functions. Often, iron chains were stretched across the river to prevent passing without paying the toll, and strategic towers were built to facilitate this. I mean, do you believe these guys that put chains across the uh, Holy Roman Empire the Holy Roman Emperor and various noblemen and archbishops who were authorized to levy tolls seem to have worked out an informal way of regulating this process. Among the decisions involved in managing the collection of the tolls on the Rhine were how many toll stations, where they should be built, how high the tolls should be, and advantages and disadvantages. While this decision process, process was made no less complex by being informal, common factors included the local power structure, you know, bishops and that space between toll stations and the ability to be defended from attack. Some castles through which tolls were collected were tactically useful until the French invaded in 1689 and leveled them. Thank you, France. Tolls were standardized either in terms of an amount of silver coin to be charged or an in-kind toll of cargo from the ship. In contrast, the men who became known as robber barons, violated the structure under which the tolls were collected on the Rhine, either by charging higher tolls than the standard or by operating without authority from the Holy Roman Emperor altogether. Writers of this period refer to these practices as unjust tolls. Not only did the robber barons thereby violate the prerogatives of the Holy Roman Emperor, they prerogatives of the Holy Roman Emperor, they also went outside the society's behavioral norms, since merchants were bound both by law and religious custom to charge a just price for their wares. Interregnum period. During the period of the Holy Roman Empire, known as the Interregnum, Interregnum, 1250-1273, there was no emperor the number of tolling stations exploded in the absence of imperial authority, cowards. In addition, robber barons began taking, began to earn their newly coined term of opprobrium op, 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 by robbing ships of their cargo, stealing entire ships, and even kidnapping. I might have to go back in time and take out some of these dudes. 1,200 punk, 1,200. In response to this organized military lawlessness, the Rheinischner Bund, or the Rhine League, was formed by and from the nobility, knights, and lords of the church, all of which held large stakes in the restoration of law and order on the Rhine. 
Officially launched in 1254, the Rhine League wasted no time putting robber barons out of business by the simple expedient by the simple expedient of taking and destroying their castles. In the next three years, four robber barons were targeted, and between 10 and 12 robber castles destroyed or inactivated. The Rhine League was not only successful in suppressing an illicit collection of tolls and river robbery, on at least one occasion they intervened to rescue a kidnapped victim. I don't know if I buy that, who had been kidnapped by the Baron of Reitberg. The procedure pioneered by the Rhine League for dealing with robber barons to besiege, capture, and destroy their castles survived long after the League self-destructed from political strife over the election of a new emperor and the military reversals against the unusually strong robber barons. When the uh, inter-whatever period ended, the new emperor, Rudolf of Habsburg, applied the lessons learned by the Rhine League to the destruction of the highway robbers at Sunnik, torching their castles and hanging them. While robber barony never entirely ceased, especially during the Hundred Years' Wars, the excesses of their heyday never recurred. There's some other stuff in there uh, from Wikipedia, but that'll be in the show notes. Then I wanted to do this uh, uh, thing from our buddy Rick Steves over at uh, Rick Steves Europe. And this is by Rick Steves. Let's see how long it is. It's not too long. It's a nice little article. The Rhine River, Raging with History. Now, there's nothing I would love to do more than take a Rhine River cruise with Rick Steves. Oh, boy. And I'm not even being facetious. I think that'd be wicked cool. Uh, And then maybe I could hop in, like, go back in time and beat beat some of these robber barons up. But they probably have soldiers and stuff and swords. But anyway, The Rhine River, Raging with History by Rick Steves. And I'll uh, quote and paraphrase. So it's in the article be in the show notes. Jostling through crowds of German tour Germans and tourists in the Rhine River village of Bacharach, I climbed to the sun deck of the ferry and grabbed a chair. With the last passenger barely aboard, the gangplank is dragged into the river. The gangplank is dragged in and the river pulls us away. I'm captivated by the Rhine. There's a rhythm to the mighty river that merges with its environment. Black slate cuts from the plains above. Terrace vin- vineyards zigzagging up the hills, husks of ruined castles and stoic spires of stone churches slicing vertically through townscapes. Passengers park as flap in the cool wind as a rugged hillscape gradually reveals castles, both ruined and restored. The ridges of the gorge rise above us, unblemished by any modern building, thanks to a strict code that holds the tide of contemporary Germany back out of sight from this romantic river escape. Tortured, green vineyards climb steep hillsides and turreted towns grab friendly bits of shoreline. Trains streak like arrows across both shores. Bright green and red buoys battle the current, keeping the cautious parade of barges and sightseeing boats off many reefs. The sheer bulk of history that has poured through this river valley rouses any romantic soul. It was here the ancient Romans decided to call it an empire and draw the line that defined their vast holdings, separating barbarians from the civilized world. It was here that the Prussian general von Blücher used an innovative pontoon bridge to cross the Rhine and flank Napoleon's forces on their way back from a disastrous Russian campaign. 
and it was also along the Rhine where U.S. General Omar Bradley's troops found a bridge still standing at Remagen to bring World War II into Hitler's heartland. While the Rhine is over 800 miles long, the 36-mile stretch from Mainz to Koblenz is by far the most interesting. This is the Romantic Rhine, a powerful stretch of river slashing a deep and scenic gorge. And the best way to see it is to cruise it. While some travelers do the whole Mainz Koblenz trip, today I'm just focusing on the most scenic tour, cruising downstream from Baccarat to St. Gore. From early April through October, boats run daily in both directions. Most travelers sail on the bigger KD line. The BR line is cheaper but makes fewer trips per day. Both cruises offer the same evocative scenery. There's a little narration, and studious passengers use handy Rhine map guides to identify the sites. All along the Rhine, it seems each castle and every rock comes with a story. Many of the castles were robin baron fortresses built by petty princes and two-bit rulers back when there were 350 independent little states in what is today's Germany. Castle's owners raised heavy chains across the river when the boats came and lowered them only when the merchants had paid their duty. We saw close by one of the many scenic fortresses, Faltz Castle, which was built on an island in the middle of the river. As the cliffs get steeper, the rocks darker, and the river faster, the scenery becomes more dramatic. With the boat's sun deck filled mostly with beer-sipping, ice-cream-licking Germans, our collective pulse quickens as we approach the mythological climax of the cruise. Over the ship's loudspeakers come the story of the Lorley, the maiden who seduced ship sailors into shipwrecks. Because the reef's just upstream, many ships never made it to St. Gore. Sailors, after days on the river, blamed their misfortune on a maiden whose long blonde hair almost covered her body. This legendary siren flirted and sang her distracting song from this rock, a legend immortalized in the poetry of Heinrich Hein. Our boat survives the Lorelei and docks in St. Gore, a classic Rhine tourist town. Its hulk of a castle overlooks a half-timbered shopping street and leafy Riverside Park, busy with sightseeing ships and contented strollers. Sitting like a dead pit bull above St. Gore, Rheinfeld's castle grumbles with ghosts from its hard-fought past the single best Rhineland ruin to explore. While the, town of Saint, um, while the town of St. Gore itself isn't much more than a few hotels and restaurants, it makes a good base for hiking and biking the region. A tiny ferry will shuttle you back and forth across the busy Rhine from here. For a little jaunt, take a quick round trip with some time to explore the other side. The Rhine Valley Storybook Germany, a fairy tale legend. The Rhine Valley is Storybook Germany, a fairy tale a fairy tale world of legends and medieval castles. Through it all, the deep, quiet, gray powder of the river flows as steadily as time itself. A dance floor where fairies, barges, and sightseeing boats do their lumbering, lumbering dosy do past fabled and treacherous rocks. So the sweet words of Rick Steves about the land of the robber barons, the Rhine River. Thank you, Rick. So. You know, if you, if you got there was a point at, at, towards the end where uh, Joff says, Sir Ellen, bring me his head. Now, Sir Ellen is Illen. I said, I think I said Sir Ellen, Illen. Sir Ellen is what I meant to say. But, uh, 
you know, more that's his like uh, whatever executioner type guy. He's the guy with no tongue. If you remember earlier in the season, he's a creep, creepy looking dude. But you know, most people be like, "Oh, that was a creepy looking guy." Oh dear, poor Ned Stark, poor Sansa, poor Arya. Not me. I was like, I was like, dude, you be Ellen. Bump, 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 bump. The Run DMC eats and Run DMC song stuck in my head. Then, I mean, while all that tragedy was playing, I was like thinking, uh, "Well, let's do the lyrics, and then we'll talk about the song and Run DMC for a minute." You be Ellen. One day. When I was chilling in Kentucky Fried Chicken, just minding my business, eating food and finger licking, this dude walked in, looking strange and kind of funny, walked up to the front with his menu and his money. He didn't walk straight, kind of side to side. He asked the old lady, yo, I'm, uh, is this Kentucky Fried? The lady said, yeah, smiled. He smiled back, gave a quarter and his order, small fries, Big Mac, you be illin. Do, 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 do. Today he won a ticket to go see Dr. J. For front row. Wait. Day you won a ticket to see Dr. J. Front row seat in free, no pay. Radio in hands, snacks by feet. Game's about to start, you're kicking popcorn to the beat. You finally wake up. Doc's gone to town. Round his back through the hoop. Then you scream. Touchdown. You be yelling. Do, 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 do. Uh, the other day around the way I see you illin' at a party. Drunk as a skunk, you illin' punk, and in your left hand is Bacardi. You went to this fly girl and said, yo, can I get this dance? She smelt your breath, and she left you standing. Oh, that's one to sing. The other day around the way I saw you illin' at a party. Drunk as a skunk, you illin' punk, and in the left hand was Bacardi. You went up to this fly girl and said, yo, can I get this dance? She smelt your breath and then she left. You standing in your illin stance, you be illin. Bop, 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 bop. For dinner, you ate it and there is none left. It was salty with butter and it was deaf. You proceeded to eat it because you was in the mood. But Holmes, you did not read it was a can of dog food. You be illin. So that's a wonderful work of uh, Run DMC. Yubilin, according to Wikipedia, is the third signal single released from their third album, Raising Hell. It was released in 86. That's in 1986 through Profile Records as a follow-up to their rap, rap rock crossover hit, Walk This Way. It was produced by Run DMC. The song performed well on the charts, peaking at 29 on the Billboard Hot 100. Song had a special appearance from Dr. Mark Davis Lorton, who is now a famous allergist. He must have put that in there. <laughs> he was a background singer. The slang term illing means to be uncool and unrelaxed, to be acting crazy, to be tripping or bugging, or to be acting whack. Citations needed. The song describes some examples of illing and chides a fictitious individual for his illing behavior. Such examples include a man ordering a Big Mac and French fries at a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, calling out touchdown at a basketball game, (laughs) repelling a woman at a party with bad breath, and being oblivious to the fact he's eating dog food for dinner. On the show Monk, Season 6, Episode 2, from July 20, 2007, a small portion of the track can be heard in with mixed with another track. 
And that's U.B. Uh, Elling. But not to be outdone by U.B. Elling, then, then instead of watching the execution, Arius watches these birds fly. And I'm pretty sure they are pigeons because the irony that she had just broken the pigeon's neck and now her father is losing his neck or having his neck uh, severed. Um, I was like, oh, are those uh, doves? And I was thinking of, you know, peace. And then I was thinking of Prince and the song When Doves Cry, believe it or not, seriously. When the recording Wikipedia, When Doves Cry, is a song by the American musician Prince and the lead single from his 1984 album Purple Rain. That's, by the way, an aside is the nickname of my bike. I have a 1980s frame 10-speed bike with the purple. It's purple and white. And it's kind of, it's, it's just a 10 speed, but people still laugh at it when they see me on the, on the train. They have a gig, giggle or laugh or say nice bike. And I say, hey, yeah, this is my bike, Purple Rain. And if they still give me the time of day, I say, but it's spelled R-E-I-G-N. Um, and then they usually walk away and shake their head like, huh, I don't know if this guy so it really is crazy. He's got crazy. And then it's not like it's a crazy bike. I guess it's when you see a purple and white bike and a grown man, uh, you just start laughing, which I guess is a good thing. It's not rather, you know, it's not like it's so, it's not like I have like um, ribbons or, or uh, a sparkly seat or anything, but whatever. Purple Rain's nickname of my bike and that, that album. Uh, what Wind Doves Cry, though, was a worldwide hit and it was his first Prince, his, not my bike, his. Uh, number one single topping the charts for five weeks, according to Billboard magazine. It was the top-selling single of the year. It was certified platinum, two million units shipped in the U.S. of A. It was the last single recorded by a solo artist to receive platinum before the cert- certifications were changed. According to the Purple Rain DVD, Prince was asked by the director of a song to match the theme of part of the film, one that inter- intermingled parental difficulties, and a love affair. The next morning, Prince had reportedly composed two songs, one of which was When Doves Cry, according to Per Nielsen, Prince's biographer. The song was inspired by his relationship with Vanity Six member Susan Moonsey. In fact, the song was number one for five weeks from July 7, 1984 to August 4th, keeping Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark and Courtney Cox from reaching the top spot. Was that the one video Courtney Cox was in? When Doves Cry was voted as the best single of the year in the Village Voice, and Billboard ranked it as the number one single of 84. The B-side was the cult fan favorite, 17 Days. Originally intended for Apollonia 6's self-titled album, 12-inch single in the UK, blah, blah, blah. Uh... Prince wrote and composed When Doves Cry after all the other tracks on Purple Rain was complete. In addition to vocals, he played all the instruments on the track. The song's texture is remarkably stark. There's no bass line, which is unusual for a dance song. Prince has said that there originally was a bass line, but he decided after a conversation with singer Jill Jones that the song was too conventional and left it intact. During live performances of the song on the Purple Rain tour, Brown Mark, Prince's then bass player, added bass lines in the song and other songs without a bass line. Those Prince got against bass, man. 
You don't need bass, though. I mean, Prince barely needs backup singers. Song features an intro of a guitar solo and a Lim, Lin LM1 drum machine, followed by a looped guttural vocal. After the lyrics, there's another much longer guitar and synthesizer solo. Song ends on classical music-inspired keyboard piece, backed by another synthesizer solo. The music video, the music video directed by Prince himself, was released on MPV in June 1984. It opens with white doves emerging from double doors to reveal Prince in a bathtub. It also includes scenes from Purple Rain film, interspersed with shots of the revolution performing and dancing in a white room. The final portion of the, the video incorporates a mirrored frame of the left half of the picture, creating a double effect. The video was nominated for Best Choreography at 1985's MTV Video Music Awards. The video sparked controversy among network executives who thought its sexual nature was too explicit for TV. And, of course, we got to do the uh, the lyrics, of course, right? And this is just a wonderful song. I, I like You Be Yelling is a funny song. This is a, this is just a great Prince song. And, of course, I can't hit the notes like Prince can, but Prince, when doves cry, dig, if you will, the picture of you and I engaged in a kiss, maiden. The sweat of your body covers me. Can you, my darling, can you picture this? Dream, if you can, a courtyard, an ocean of violets in bloom. Animals strike curious poses. They feel the heat, the heat between me and you. How can you just leave me standing, alone in a world that's so cold, so cold? Maybe I'm just too demanding. Maybe I'm like my father, too bold. Maybe you're just like my mother. She's never satisfied. She's never satisfied. Why do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. Touch, if you will, my stomach, maiden, please. Feel how it trembles inside. You've got the butterflies all tied up. Don't make me chase you. Even doves have pride. I don't know if that's even possible, but... How can you just leave me standing alone in a world that's so cold, so cold? Maybe I'm just too demanding. Maybe I'm like my father, too bold. Maybe you're just like my mother. She's never satisfied. Never satisfied. Why do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like. Are we sure it's just not we're making the doves cry, maiden? And if you do, they might drown. How can you just leave me standing alone in a world that's so cold? Maybe I'm just so demanding. You know, Maiden, we just can't keep going on like this, okay? We can't hurt the doves of the world. Why don't you just, you know, my stomach's not trembling anymore. Um, I've got the, you know, I'll strike some curious poses, you know? But that's uh, when doves cry and uh, made me, Arya looking at those pigeons made me think about the doves crying. And I actually never read the lyrics before. The funny part makes me laugh. <laughs> I didn't realize that in the song, the song I'm doing now, that me and the maiden's argument was making that either when we scream at each other, that's what it sounds like when doves cry. 
but I would think it would be more like the doves are crying. Mommy, Daddy, quit fighting, please. That wouldn't be Mommy and Daddy. Daddy, are you fighting with a goddess? Stop. She's going to... The doves are crying outside. Don't worry, maiden, I'm not going to break your heart. Well, it's possible. I mean, I might disappoint you. It would be more. So if you have a disappointing, broken heart via disappointment, then doves are going to be crying soon. Clarice. All right, uh, let's uh, let's let's get this shindig on the windig, as we say. Good evening, everyone. This is Tommen uh, saying hello from the world of Westeros, and I think I I don't think it's uh it might be news to you, or I mean, I'm not, I think it's official that I am. Uh, I believe I am Prince. I could tell you I'm Prince Tommen. I think I. I think I'm Prince Orphazil, Lord Tommen, or Sir Tommen. I think I would like to be Prince Tommen. Well, I'm not sure. Joff said I was the Prince of Poop, Tommen, the Prince of Poop, which I did not like at all. And I, oh, and then he said, uh, you know, what did he say? Your Grace, I must call him Your Grace. And he said, call me Your Grace, you fattily baby face. And, that, and I, I looked at myself in the mirror. I said, he may be right. And, uh, well, but but, but uh, anyway, this is Tommen. Prince Tommen, Sir Tommen, Lord Tommen. It does not matter for the most important title I carry. is the title of best friend of one Sir Pounce, the bravest cat in all the world, known from Westeros to... Other places, as the greatest cat who's ever lived, and the most bravest cat, as I've said, and the best friend a boy could have, of course. And we are here, still continuing, Sir Pounce in the Quest 08. Now, when we last left off, I, um, I don't know if it was when I went to the bathroom. When I have, we used to have the room with the balcony, we were talking about that, and Sir Pounce was trying to explain to me this plucking of, but anyway... What happened was Sir Pounce was out in the woods and he used his keen, keen sense of sound. Hearing, they say, hearing. Oh, I'm watching Sir Pounce now. His ears are moving. It is one of Sir Tom and Lord Tommen's favorite things to just watch my cat, Sir Pounce, when I know he's not watching me watch him. And I could see... He's resting, and then his ears move, and the, it's like his ears are little people. And they're looking around, they're saying, what's that over there? Oh, oh I'm moving my, I'm, I'm a ear person, I'm moving my head. Oh, is something over there? Like they're looking back, if, oh, 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 it makes me laugh so, and forget that Joff said his first act of king was to make me clean all of the chamber pots in the Red Keep. And I said, Mother, please tell me no. And she laughed at me and gave me that look. And she said, Your brother's king now, Tommen. So, uh, I need to, I don't have time for your blubbering. And, um, so Sir Pounce was going for the quest of a to pluck a, a whisker. Which he said it's not actual plucking of whiskers, it's for something else he does when he wrestles lady cats or some I he said, Don't do it to your sister, I've told you that. Or to any I said, uh, well this that wasn't my sister. This was a couple days ago. 
I said that was a septa. She was young septa, new, and fresh-faced, they said. And I said, uh, well, anyway, they said not to speak of it again, so I shan't. So Sir Pouncey was in the woods, listening and smelling, and he sensed a river, for he was in the river lands, and he came to a great river, and it was at the part of the river where it is neither rough nor placid, it was, and it was rocks, and Sir Pounce said, I think I'll have a cat now. I'm going to do a little Sir Pounce for you. I'll keep a cat now. I'll have a cat now. I think I'll have a cat now. That's my Sir Pounce. <laughs> I, I only do it here, for I'm ashamed that I'll be hurt inside. In my feelings by someone for, for doing Sir Pounce, but he, his ear looked at me and said, Hey, what are you doing? You're not Sir Pounce. I'm hearing you over here, just like Sir Pounce inside this head. But anyway, Sir Pounce, he was at the river, and he said, I think I'll have a fish. And he watched the river, and he somehow his eyes, cat eyes, can see through the river. And even though Sir Pounce does not like the water, he loves the fish, and his paws aren't afraid of the water. So he was watching and walking and studying the movement of fish, and his cat, little cat brain was calculating the time it takes a fish to go from point A to point B, and what movement the fish will make, and how would Sir Pounce pounce on the, on the fish. And just as Sir Pounce was about to pounce, he thought he heard in the distance a cry, a cry of a child, and his ear said, Hmm, is that a cry of a child? And Sir Pounce said, I think it is, and he, his eyes looked across the river, and he saw a small hut, a small, shabby hut, filled with a family in terrible, terrible straits. For this family, I don't know what was going on. He said the father had these boils, and the mother, she, had, she said she was repulsed by the boils, and she moved away. And the children, they couldn't eat, and they were so hungry, they were crying, and their father was hungry. And Sir Pounce said to himself, Well, this isn't right. But this river stands between me and these children. And this, uh, I'm sure this fish on the other side. And Sir Pounce started to jump from rock to rock. And the children sensed it. And they came out and they watched as Sir Pounce leaped and slipped and leaped again. And leaped from rock to rock. Now, some people will say, Oh, that's not fair to a cat. This is like jumping from dragon's tooth to dragon's tooth on a living dragon, or like being Joff's brother. Both terrible, terrible things. But it's spending, or like he's spending an entire meal with Joff, and you never know when you're going to slip, and he's going to, you know, oh, oh, it is hard, so hard being Tommen, but I do have the best friend a boy could have. And so Sir Pounce main jumped and jumped and jumped, but he was so brave. Even when he slipped, he used his tail, and he even one time slipped, and his little face got in the water, and he was scared, but he did not care. He kept going, and he got to the other side of the river, and he caught a fish, and he took the fish up, and he dragged it up to the children, and then he did it again, and again, and again, and then he pointed to the children with his nose and showed them how to build a fire. And the children cooked up the fish and nursed their father and Sir Pounce catch the fish every day. And they, um, the children got well and slowly, 
the father's boils healed. And he got well as well. Now, the whole time this was happening, little did Sir Pounce know there was a lady cat watching. And some might say she was a goddess. Some may say it was the mother. Some may say it was the maiden. We don't really know. Well, we do know this was the mother because Sir Pounce said he left some uh, baby kittens for the children to care for, which I don't know how how he got the baby kittens. But he said this woman cat came down and she said, you're quite the hero. And he said, uh, you're quite the beautiful cat. What do you call that color? It is stunning. And she said, I call it midnight gray. And Sir Pounce said, I've never seen gray midnight before, but it makes my heart beat like a cat that's been crossing a river. And woman, I would cross the river and back again for you. Um, well, maybe I, I'm not sure I would, but, uh, you know, how do you feel about fish? And she said, you know how I feel about getting fish for children and a boil-covered man? And Sir Pounce said he plucked a whisker from that one and then left all her baby kittens for her to care for. But he said that was cool because she was um, the mother of God or whatever. And he had his little thing and he said to the children, you know your dad gets those boils because when he was drunk on that moonshine he fell into this patch. So here's where still is. Go ahead and burn it. And he said to the father, he slapped him a couple times with claw. He said, get your act together, man. And uh, they're going to have some cats to care for, but they're the goddess cat, so they should help you too. Go sell them in town, and uh, they'll fetch a pretty penny. And you might say, Sir Pounce, how could you do that? They were, weren't they? He, he said, Tom, and don't worry about the kittens. It's a story. It's true. But I'm a cat of legends, not a cat of uh, living in the Red Keep, running to my mother's. And not, you know, uh, and, you know, peeing off of balconies. And I said, who do you speak of, Sir Pounce? And he said, oh, just a lost little child I met one time, far from here. And I said, there's another red keep. And Sir Pounce said, oh, yes, there is. And that, my friends, is the end of our tale, because uh, Sir Pounce is scratching the door because he wants to go out to do something and I'm not allowed to leave this gods, but it's weird. If I open the door, they'll let Sir Pounce out, but not me. And But they, they'll let uh, they'll let uh, Joff come right in and do whatever he wants to me, so I don't understand what the gods are there for. Mother said they're there, so I don't hurt anyone or myself. But Joff's the one that hurts me, you know. But anyway, you can't hurt a man, a boy. Man, I almost said man one day. I will be a man. And uh, hopefully I'll be a much better man. I'll be a much better man because my best friend's abouts. And that is the end of my tale. Thank you for listening. Good day. Hey, guys, it's me praying in. Uh, sweet crone, lovely crone. Miller, Barky, Smith, Jester. Uh, you know, I'm here in servitude, substra substration, prostration, um, not not of any no no m strations like masturbation or menstruation but um concentration um constant straight constant stration or whatever that one is is where i'm at consternation i think it is gods yeah i got a bit of that going um here's 
Gads, let me just lay it all on the line. Last week I was, I wanted to catch you up uh, with all the stuff with the uh, Clegane, Bolton, Alderman, but now let's just lay it all, you know, let's put it out there, okay? Start a holy war by accident. And I need, really need you to lean on you. You know, I, I feel bad, but, but up until now, well, I guess there's been a crisis, a lot of crisis I've been trying to lean on you guys for. I mean, I know you gods would prefer it if it came along when everything was good. You're like, hey, why are you praying when you want something? Well, I don't want anything so much as that I want to avoid uh, George R. Martin's ire because I already messed up the jet season. And... um I didn't, I didn't, uh, it wasn't it wasn't like I was one of those super fans as like get back to your writing because I didn't even need it was more like I'm worried about his health so that was for him but I'm sure it didn't make him happy with us having to destroy the jet season and then this whole but I know if he finds out about this holy war he's gonna go he probably rip his beard right out of his face gods and throw away all his hats and then we're when where are we gonna be and that's a good question when and where. So, the situation is, uh, uh, there's a new religion now called the Severed Souls. Based on, um, I don't know, I got people, what do they call it when people go on the religious treks? Everyone's coming to the uh, shut-in city because they think it's some sort of, like, gathering place for people who have risen from the dead. And they keep telling them, no, those people are almost dead. And they, then they were like, oh, that's your, okay, let's sit down and hear your parable. And uh, then I tell them a story, but they take it like it's the exact opposite of my normal problem. I'm wanting them to take me literally, and they're taking me like metaphorically. And um, so they think they like the, I don't even know what they like about the religion. I said, you know, Let's take these old people in. They're almost dead. You know, I don't care if you don't like your mother. Let's switch it up. This other lady can, if her son's sick of her, he'll take your mother. Kind of like, I know you don't got reality shows, gods, but it's like a, the show would be like grandmother swap, we'd call it, or grandfather swap. But usually the grandfathers, uh, you know, we have these things called garages. And it's a, They don't have them in Westeros. But I, anyway... Will you like swap grandmothers? Not the families do, but we also had all those things in this uh, town with the houses, you know, to places to care for the older people. But then people, people started saying that uh, I had severed the souls from. I don't even. I'm not. Again, I'm not even sure of the lore of my own fake religion, because I don't want to. I don't believe in it. But these people are calling themselves the severed souls. They're going to town to town saying that, that you can sever your soul from the, the, um, the some of the gods that don't do nothing. The glory gods, they're calling them, which is, uh, and I guess this part, maybe some people have been listening to these podcasts. I don't know how. Barky, the podcast, that pod, the iPod I put for you is probably uh, how. Because someone took it, and I now I know it's not you. But so they've been listening, and they think that if they sever their souls from the father and the mother and the dead guy, the guys, and they just praise the crone, and everyone, they, I like how they say, sweet, sweet crone, sweet, sweet crone. 
like some of them, the monks of the severed souls. I think they call us, themselves a uh, skull something. I, I don't know. I'll think of it, but um, so. But then they, then they're like the regular, like new gods. It, it gets so confusing with these old gods and the new gods, the new new gods, the new god, the freaking fire god. You got the reaver gods. Um. Hey, you got. We need more creative. That's why the good thing about the severed souls is you're just. It's not the old gods or the new. It's you're in the severed souls. You've severed your soul from the father and the mother, and um, moved out to like make your way in the world. And I accidentally said like one of my parables. Like, I was trying to come. People were like you need to make a speech, and I was like, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. You know, it's like. Don't you feel people, you guys, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, doesn't take in your break from all your worries. You guys think, who thinks that would help a lot? Well, yeah. Is it, anybody else, like, wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes, don't you want you guys want to go where everybody knows your name? Where they're always glad you came? Don't you want to be where you can be? Some where Troubles are all the same or something? You want to go where everybody knows your name? Uh, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Um, I don't know what my point is with that, gods, but, uh, sometimes you're making your way in the world. So I don't know. Uh, but that one turned into some whole thing. And, uh, I don't know. I lost, I told the gods, I'm sorry. I lost myself in prayer there. Uh, but things have just been, um, let's see. Oh, gods, new gods, severed souls, getting rid of the. So a lot of these, you know, these churches are pretty nice, the seps. And the people that live there and run those are pretty, you know, they got it pretty good. And most of the, um, we'll call them ruling class. I don't want to be labeling people. Uh, I mean, because this label thing stick, obviously severed souls stuck, and that's blowing up in my face. But so I don't know who got the idea to start going in these and battling with these people. But I said, I said, uh, I mean, it was some story I told about, oh, I can't even remember. What was it? I don't know. I think I was using like the game Starcraft as another storytelling device and talk about the Zerg and the Protoss and the Terran and, um, uh, you know, Bloodfriar and, um, uh, some of the other sayings. And they got all mixed up, and they thought I was like, this was a battle plan. So, Severed Souls, this is a, well, words of, words, six and stones, I guess, uh, break bones, but words can hurt, hurt thee, because my words seem to be unintentionally. So, these people are breaking into these seps, and then uh, throwing the people, they say, do you know my name? This is a place I want to go where everyone should, you know, right in the middle of like their services. Not, that's not the thing I go for, guys. I'm a low profile dude. Again, if I would have had those boots, maybe I would have just quit, but there's not much we can do now. Um, the whole thing is, plus I'm on the whole, you know, remember the beginning of the season, I'm on just on a quest to glorify you guys' names. Now the good news, Smith, is this no doubt is glorifying your name. And once we get this all calmed down, this confusion, uh, maybe Severed Souls will just be some, uh, you know, extremist uh, segment that's less uh, 
um, you know, like work but work it back into the new God thing. And then they'll be like, this will be like your branch of priests and nuns or whatever, septs and septons, septas and septons. Uh, because they, you know, they since they're severed souls, they like swords and knives and whatever other stuff we stole. And maybe you've been donating stuff because you didn't, I don't know, maybe this is your move, Smith. I don't know if you're making a move. A warrior, that's another one where the severed souls are against. They want to sever the war. You know, they hate the warrior. Uh, weird. They hate warlike people hating war. Uh, so I'm trying to get a lid on this, but I honestly, I guess I, like I'm trying to figure out these people love these sitcoms and cartoons from my youth. So I'm trying, I was going to try to rewatch Perfect Strangers. I don't know why. Like I figured the whole Balky Bartakamus and Larry. Um, but I need like, I was, I was like, I need a third person. I mean, I know Perfect Strangers had some other characters, but for like the old gods, the new gods, and then the severed souls. So I don't know, maybe 48 hours or trading, uh, what's that, trading places. And I'll think about it, gods. Um, but again, if you, if you could just like, um, just break like George R. R. Martin's ability to get on the internet for a while. So that he doesn't, I mean, he's, I don't think he's going to catch wind of this anyway, but I just don't want him like being like, okay, I'm going to lock down here. Jet season's done. I'm going to write about 10,000 pages this week. And he starts getting into his um, fantasy zone, you know, where he imaginations. And they, he's like, oh, this, he's like, wait a second. When I left off here, the, how come what's with these bodies? Oh, how come the Acepta Baylor's on fire? What in the heck? And then he's going to start asking questions and they could be like, you know, that guy, he's got a podcast. We've been listening to it. And then George R. Martin's going to be, wait, wait, wait. You're listening to podcasts in Westeros? And then he's going to be mad at me. And I don't want him mad at me. I didn't mean to mess this all up. I did not mean to even create a fan fiction that would collide with real, fake, you know, his fictional universe. I was just trying to bring glory to your names, gods. And get those boots, maybe hook up with the maiden, or if uh, Grey Worm decides to be celibate uh, with uh, Miss, 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 you guys don't know, that's coming up in a couple seasons, but, uh, um, or Khaleesi, but I, again, I don't think I can, I don't think, she, I mean, she's, she's out of my league, I think. And I'm not talking about looks or power or anything, it's just like, uh, um, I don't know. I like her. I mean, believe me, if she likes me, that's fine. That's great. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a little intimidated. Maiden, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm more intimidated by you, Maiden, but, you know, love runs deep. And again, um, Maiden, I guess I should bring you in on this because obviously I didn't mention you earlier. Uh, in the religion, we're married and uh, in the severed souls and... Uh, they call, they call, they, and I'm like the, um, like Bacchanalian type God. I made this part, I guess I kind of made up, um, they call, I call myself the lover, maiden and the lover. Um, and I told some stories about that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Like, obviously, uh, uh, but maiden, you should listen to the stories. Cause I tell, only tell them after dark, it's called, I call it severed souls after dark. After the kids are in bed, I say, hey, uh, you okay, everybody gather around. This is uh, 
you know, part of religion, you don't get an accept. This is uh, the lover talking tales of his time with the maiden and many other ladies and uh, lady-like creatures of Westeros. And they tell tales like that, maiden see You've probably been listening. You know how it is. You know, I know you like how I kiss that up. What do we call that? The crook of your neck, but it's got a more romantic thing, I call it. Your nape. You know, I'm a nape lover, maiden. You know, your ivory, crimson, uh, sweet, olivey, ebony, greeny nape. That nape of all colors. Um, I love nuzzling your nape. What can I say? And the rest of the gods, you know, Mitt Crone. Your nape, no, uh, I love you, crone. And uh, so, gods, I don't know what to say. I just need some help down here. Getting a handle on this religious war spread to about, um, uh, I'm trying to get some crows to find out how far it spread. And uh, I don't even know who's in charge of Westeros, like what part of the sage I'm in. So I gotta get I gotta get back to work, guys. I'm sorry for messing all this up. So I'll be back soon to to try to fix I'm fixing stuff. But again, this just might be, you know, just a bump in the road for bringing glory to all of you. Maybe this is gonna be the new thing. Severed souls. Uh, maybe this was my intention all along. I should have just thought it through before I started, because I did say I want to glorify you above the other gods. Let's see how it goes. I just don't want to mess up the story for George R. R. Martin and have him mad. Or Matt Weiss and Benny off. They, whoa, I didn't even think about that. And the show and then everyone on the show. Oh, wait, you guys don't want it. That's just like a, a historical reenactments we're talking about. All right, gods, thank you so much. This is your uh, um, servant in servitude and praise and unintentional uh, crusade-like situations checking out. Thanks. Good night, gods.